Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a Minnesota census update. Education Minnesota President Denise Speck weighs in on concerns heading into the new school year and a preview of the PGA Tour 3M Open's return to Minnesota. But first... The House will come to order. Lawmakers came back to St. Paul this week for their second special session of the year, and although it's because of COVID-19, there are plenty of other hot-button issues, as MNN's Bill Werner is here to tell us about. Scott, the legislature is back in session because Governor Tim Walz extended his COVID emergency powers another 30 days. State law says when a governor does that, they must give lawmakers the opportunity to say no. We're not going to get through this by having someone serve as an emperor of Minnesota. We need to draw together. Chaska Senator Scott Jensen has Republicans who hold a majority in the Minnesota Senate wasted no time passing a resolution canceling the governor's emergency powers over objections from Democrats. I've heard dictator, tyrant, emperor. I know Tim Walz, I think he doesn't like to be forced into a position where he has to have executive authority like this. But somebody does have to make some major decisions. Senator John Marty, Republican Jerry Ralph from St. Cloud, responded, the time has ended. For the emergency to be dealt with on the basis of one person making decisions, whether our kids should go back to school, whether businesses should be open. But Shoreview Democrat Jason Isaacson says states that have taken a chance and loosened their COVID rules are clearly paying the price for it now. And they're not paying the price for it just economically. They're paying the price for it with people's lives. But the resolution canceling the governor's emergency powers, which passed on nearly a party-line vote in the Minnesota Senate, hit a brick wall in the Democrat-controlled Minnesota House, despite protests by prior Lake Republican Tony Albright, who said to the governor, consider the continued economic damage. The repercussions will last, for some, a lifetime. Do you really want to live with that? Do you want that to be your legacy? St. Paul Democrat Dave Pinto responded, Governor Walls is not the cause of economic losses. COVID-19 is. We are up at 3.4 million infections across the country. We're adding 60,000 new infections a day. We're up to 135,000 deaths. There is no way in which this emergency is passed. Among the controversial decisions Governor Walls must make using his emergency authority is whether Minnesota students can return to the classroom this fall or whether they continue distance learning or a combination of those two. House Republican lawmakers introduced a bill this week which would leave that decision to school districts. Little Falls Representative Ron Creshaw says local officials best know their COVID situation. Remember, the Walls administration was basing their initial policy off a peak two days from now in the high 20,000s, not even close to that. Health Commissioner Jan Malcolm said a statewide policy on students' return to school should be used to the extent possible, but added that tailoring could be allowed because local conditions do differ, she says. 
The special session whipped up an even bigger cloud of politics, swirling around efforts to pass a bonding bill for state public works projects. House Democrats moved a $1.8 billion package forward, and to attract Republican votes were apparently willing to include business tax relief, something Speaker Melissa Hortman is not enthusiastic about doing. It is not our first priority to cut taxes for businesses that are making money. It is our first priority to help uh, Minnesotans improve their lives. And by that, we mean individuals and families. A small number of Republicans were reportedly interested in Democrats' offer, but the mainstream Republican caucus said they are not. It's becoming a huge garbage bill, uh, and I don't think you can sell the bonds with a bill that has all these unrelated issues in it. Preston Representative Greg Davids. But an even bigger sticking point, House Republicans continued saying they would not help pass a bonding bill unless Governor Tim Walz gives up his COVID emergency powers. And there is another just as controversial issue on the legislature's plate, police reform prompted by the death of George Floyd. As Republicans and Democrats tried to agree on a package of bills, the Senate GOP held hearings on what they say was a sluggish response by state and local officials to the Twin Cities riots that flared up and then exploded after Floyd's death. Nobody was focusing on the lawlessness issue and why, and so that's why we picked that one up. Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka, House Speaker Democrat, Melissa Hortman responded. Unless the inquiry is centered in understanding what happened to Philando Castile, what happened to George Floyd, and so many other people like them, the Senate is completely missing the point. The governor and the House and myself, as we've been working through the police accountability measures, have worked on a lot of those issues, and I think that side of it has been aired publicly quite a bit. Republicans went on with their hearings, calling a trio of MPD officers to the testifying table. I've never been more publicly humiliated to serve on a department full of leaders who thought that our building was nothing but bricks and mortar. That is the straw that broke our department's back. For sure. Officer Rich Walker told lawmakers city leaders will have to answer to the community for their decision as the riots escalated to abandon the 3rd Precinct Police Station. Mayor Jacob Fry said he made that decision to avoid loss of life. Sergeant Anna Hedberg told lawmakers they called for mutual aid from other agencies, but those officers were not given any orders when they arrived. I have never experienced a situation where the mayor and the governor and the commissioner is calling the shots on how we operate our business and how we try to maintain public safety. So to find out that other agencies were standing by while our officers were getting pelted and shot at, um, it's infuriating. Hedberg went on to say the damage to the city could have been lessened and the 3rd Precinct could have been defended if top officials had ordered in those reinforcements that were on standby early on. I was in the command post. I heard it. I heard the governor say, give it up. It wasn't directly to me, it was through a, through a phone call. How the governor says, give up the precinct. The governor's spokesman responded, not true and not even possible because the state did not assume operational control until the following day and, quote, the only decision Governor Walls made involving the 3rd Precinct was the mission he ordered to reclaim the building early Friday morning after it was abandoned Thursday night. Scott. Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this.
Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Parents and students are awaiting guidance from state leaders on the new school year amid the COVID-19 pandemic. A recent survey from the State Department of Education showed most parents, more than 60%, would like to see students return to school in the fall. And the Trump administration has considered withdrawing federal funding for states that don't have a full return to classes. I spoke with Education Minnesota President Denise Speck about the tricky transition back from distance learning and what it may mean for Minnesota students, parents, and school staff. Well, I don't like to hear, you know, anyone say that um, schools aren't going to get their funding. That, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense to me, um, especially when we're talking about reopening our schools after a pandemic. Um, We know that in order to reopen our schools safely and think about the health of our students and our staff, um, that actually takes funding to make that happen. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Obviously, uh, state leaders have said that they're going to have some guidance for school officials coming up in just a couple weeks here. What, uh, what are some of the priorities as we, as we wait for those decisions on what uh, is going to be happening in the fall? Right. Well, one thing that, you know, we're going to be keeping an eye on is, you know, what is the plan um, to make sure that students and staff are safe? And um, what does that look like? Everything from, you know, what kind of cleaning will happen? Um, How are we going to be, uh, um, you know, checking uh, staff and students as they come in the building? What does social distancing look like um, in a school? Um, that isn't necessarily built to for that. Um, you know, if you think about um, class sizes or hallways or um, uh, cafeterias, um, how do we transport students? Um, what does riding a bus look like? How can we, you know, practice social distancing on, you know, a school bus? Um, and then what do we do when students and staff do get sick? Um, what does that look like? Um, does the staff person go home? Do all of the students that have that staff person um, go home? Um, how long are people quarantined? You know, we just need, there are a lot of considerations to that are in play. I'm wondering if uh, Education Minnesota has any particular stance in terms or preference in terms of what happens when state leaders make their uh, announcement coming up a little bit later this month. Uh, Obviously, the idea is let's kind of see where we're at when we're closer to the time that they make that announcement. But is there a preference on the on the part of Education Minnesota? 
Well, you know, I think that most of us have been looking at three different scenarios, you know, continuing with distance learning, um, you know, in-person attendance, you know, reopening, and then a hybrid. And I would say that as I look at all of them, you know, none of them are perfect, and they all have, you know, certainly trade-offs. When you think about which plan is probably the safest, that's distance learning. But we all know that um, distance learning did not meet the educational needs of all students. I don't think that distance learning went well for most people, including um, staff and parents. Um, I think that the most educationally sound plan would be, you know, in-person attendance, you know, reopening our schools. But that is going to be very difficult to ensure safety, um, especially if we don't have the funding to do so. And the hybrid plan is financially expensive. It's very demanding. And I'm not sure that it is completely sustainable um, for a long period of time for students and staff. So I guess in a nutshell, none of them are perfect. I don't think that there is any winning plan. But I think what will be key is knowing what is the plan um, that we're going with and then how can we talk about what that's going to look like. With regard to distance learning, I'm wondering, uh, did did we learn something about that in in a way that we can improve upon it if that is the, the, the law of the land moving forward? Sure. I think we did learn a lot, and I know that there were a number of surveys and um, opportunities for parents and students and staff to to share what they saw and, you know, how it went. We absolutely have to learn from that. Um, so I will say that, you know, that's one thing. Like, we know that we will likely be in a place where we will have to implement distance learning again. I think that we will never have a snow day the same way anymore. I mean, if we've shown that we can do learning from a distance for a long period of time, I'm certain that a snow day will look different. So, yeah, what the, what can we do differently? But I think in terms of the inequities that were present um, before distance learning, but were certainly highlighted during distance learning, everything from how are we making sure that all students are fed? How are we going to make sure that um, all students have access to an equitable education? You know, we saw that, you know, we have, we know we have gaps in broadband. We have gaps in technology. Um, those things still exist. And as we look to a reopen plan, whatever it looks like, we can't lose sight of the fact that those um, inequities are still going to be there. And I hope that those um, stay front and center of every conversation. I have to ask on behalf of all the uh, school-aged children that may hear this interview, when you talk about snow days not being the same, does that mean that uh, taking the day off for a snow day is a thing of the past now that we have <laughs> distance learning? Is that Am I understanding that correctly? Well, I would, don't, <laughs> don't, don't, uh, don't mark my word on that, but I think that we have to expect that school, no matter where it is, um, learning is going to be different moving forward, um, whether it is at home, whether it's at school, and it should be. Thank you to my guest, Education Minnesota President Denise Speck. Minnesota Matters returns after this.
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The 2020 census count continues and the final push is underway to get every Minnesotan counted. Tasha Radel has more. Census 2020 matters and why billions of federal dollars are on the line. The good news, Minnesota leads the nation in response, but there is still more work to be done when it comes to census response. Joining me now is Maureen Schreiner with Census 2020 Minnesota. Well, the first thing I wanted to say is we want Minnesotans to know the 2020 census is still happening, and we are trying to count everyone in Minnesota, but time is running out. Minnesota has been doing well. We've got almost 72% of people who have already responded, but that means that we've got more than one in four households that is yet to respond. So we can still have people respond. It's easy. You can go online at 2020census.gov or by phone. You can call call at 844-330-2020. And that phone line, by the way, the 844-330-2020, it's open from 6 a.m. until 1 a.m. in the morning, seven days a week. So we're really trying to get people to respond now before census takers start heading out to visit homes in person in just a few weeks. So Maureen, what is the deadline to respond? So the census timeline has been extended. We are collecting responses through October 31st. But what will start happening in the middle of August is census takers are going to start doing visits in person to households that have not yet responded. That's one of the reasons why we're really trying to get people to respond now on their own. Again, it's at 2020census.gov. If they respond on their own, it's less likely they will have a census taker coming up to their household. And why is it so important for people to respond to the census? Yep, thanks for asking me that. The reason we want all Minnesotans counted is because By not being counted, you miss out on funding for your community every year for the next 10 years if you don't respond. A good example of this is the CARES Act, where the state of Minnesota is now distributing funding for um, COVID um, recovery. And that distribution is based on census data. Other funding that's based on census data is funding for roads and highways, for healthcare and hospitals, for job training and schools. So there are many different services where the funding is driven by census data. The other thing I want to emphasize is responses to the the 2020 census are strict confidential. It's protected by law, and it only asks a few questions. It'll ask for your name, your age, race, and sex. It does not ask for information such as citizenship status. It doesn't ask for social security numbers or bank information. It just takes a few minutes and it lasts, the impact lasts for 10 years. And when we look at the overall picture, Marine, in response, how do we compare to the rest of the country when it comes to census response? Well, I am proud to say as a Minnesotan myself that Minnesota has been leading the nation in response rates. 
our 2020 census response rate so far is almost 72%. The next closest state is actually next door at Wisconsin, and they're in at the uh, almost 69% response. Well, Maureen, we're about out of time. Any final thoughts today before we wrap up? No, I'd just like to repeat, it is very easy to do. It's at 2020census.gov. And we also want to say that if people have questions about the census, or if they want to respond by phone, that number is 844-330-2020. And I should add, we also have non-English language support. So you can respond online or by phone in one of 12 languages, including Spanish, so that if they need assistance for that, they can again go to 2020.census.gov and find language support for other languages. Thanks again to my guest, Maureen Schreiner, spokeswoman for Minnesota Census 2020. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. You, my friend, have connections in the government. Yes, you. USA.gov, the official source for government information on thousands of topics. And like any good connection, there's no telling where it can take you. Why, one day you're getting student loan information. Next thing you know, you need job hunting tips. Today's road construction info could have you searching for telecommuting ideas tomorrow. The more you use USA.gov, the more uses you'll find for it. Passport applications, for example. They've been known to lead to a sudden interest in travel advisories. Our new mobile apps will even update you on the go. So whether you have information to get or ideas to give your government, check out USA.gov. Who knows? Lottery results today could lead to retirement planning tomorrow. USA.gov. With the right connections, there's no telling where you can go. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The PGA Tour 3M Open returns to Minnesota this coming week with the opening round set for Thursday at the TPC Twin Cities course in Blaine. The 72-hole tourney will conclude on Sunday. Fans are not allowed to watch in person, but there will be national television coverage of the event. One of the golfers to keep an eye on is up-and-coming South African Eric Van Royen, who now lives in Florida. Van Royen is a former U of M golfer and is excited to be coming back to play in a PGA Tour event in Minnesota. His wife Rose and her family are from the Twin Cities. Van Royen spoke with m and Sports Director Mike Grimm. I'm really excited to come back. You know, in college, TPC Twin Cities was a golf course we played many, many times. I know there's, they've done one or two changes to the golf course. I'm looking forward to seeing what they've done, but I still feel like I know that cause like the back of my hand. So almost like a mini homecoming, I'm really looking forward to that. With regards to my golf game, you know, it started off as a, as a really good year. They kind of, you know, when they, when they kind of hit the brakes on the tour right at the players, it was an interesting period for me because I was playing some of the best golf I've, I've played and um, all of a sudden now you've, you're kind of forced to put the clubs away. So the last couple of weeks, I'm, I missed the cut at the Colonial. I played really well at RBC Heritage, and then I missed the cut again in Detroit last week. So even though I feel like my game technically and, and mentally everything is sound and everything is in place, I'm excited to, to get on a bit of a run here. I've got four events in a row where I'm going to play, and so I'm excited to 
build some positive momentum and almost get some game time in, if that makes sense. Yeah, and how hard was that uh, to be playing so well? And golf is such a fickle game where if you're on a roll, you want to take advantage of that roll, then to have everything kind of suspended worldwide. I mean, there was really nothing going on, and then you get thrown back in the action and no fans, and I'm sure it's a little bit unique uh, from that standpoint as well. Um, What was that time like where, you know, you were kind of – everyone was kind of stuck at home. I don't know if you were able to get out to the course or take some practice swings, but – you know, there's a two and a half month stretch there where no one was really able to do much. Yeah, exactly. Um, the golf course I remember at here down in Florida was closed for about five or six weeks and all the other golf courses were practically only allowing members to play. So I couldn't go and practice anywhere. So the mindset really was just look, it's it's almost a second off season. As a professional golfer, we don't really get an off season to begin with. You know, over Christmas and, and New Year's, there's maybe a two, three week break. But unless you like top 10 in the world and you can really pick and choose your schedule, it's, it's not always possible to have two months off. So I actually quite relished that time where, okay, I can put the clubs away. I can get in the gym. I can work out hard. I can spend time with my wife here in our, in our house. So I really enjoyed it. But again, like you said, you know, momentum is everything. So I'm just excited to, to now get back playing and, and get that ball going. And you mentioned, you know, you want to get on a little roll here. What what are your goals um, for the rest of this year? Obviously, I would think uh, one of them would be to get that that full time privilege of of the PGA Tour. Correct? Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, every every time you tee it up, your goal is to win. So that's always a goal of mine. Um, but I'm I'm on the cusp of securing my PGA Tour playing privileges for next year. So, um, to kind of lay it down for people, to lay it out for people. The regular season, even though it was cut down by two months, the season ends in like in like five weeks' time. Okay, so I'm playing four out of the next five weeks, and that's not including this current week. So there's about six tournaments left, including this current week, until the guy the guys go into the playoffs. So if I can play decent golf, which I'm sure I will, then come the next end of the next five weeks, I'll be I'll be a full time PJ Tour member, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, no doubt. And you've had success, you know, in certain PGA events, obviously on the European Tour. Um, mm-hmm. we, we've we seen your name pop up quite a bit on that leaderboard when we're watching on TV and in events and stuff. Um, what, what, as a pro, what has been uh, maybe a, a two or three of your, your, your fondest memories, best tournaments, uh, great finishes, all of that? I think the wins are always the ones that's going gonna, gonna to stick out. Um, I think if you, even if you ask Tiger, has had... 80-something wins in the PGA Tour, he'll, he'll remember every single one of those. So, um, you know, for me, it's, it's my first win in South Africa. Um, you know, actually, it was. Sorry, I need to retrace. The first one was actually at the Tape Mark Charity Program in, in St. Paul. Um, and then I won in South Africa, and then I went on to win on the Challenge Tour the following year. Yeah, and how much of an advantage might it be? Um, this is the second year of the three I'm open, getting back to to the TPC, and how many times you've been able to play. And as you mentioned, the course has changed a little, but most of it has stayed intact. It's been lengthened uh, from from back when you probably played it on a regular basis. But not a lot of these pros. Obviously, a few played in this event last year, but it was a rookie that won it. Um, so, do you? How big of an opportunity can maybe this be? And can you use some of that uh, familiarity with the course uh, to your advantage uh, here in a, in a couple of weeks yeah i definitely think it'll be oh i'll definitely use it as an advantage you know everything in this game is about how comfortable you can be in the environment that you're in and, and that that means you know how comfortable you can be being 
in the lead with nine holes to play, no matter where you're playing. So I definitely think it'll be an advantage. But I think you said it perfectly. A rookie won last year at the 3M Open. And I think that just shows you how good everyone is um, at you know, playing practice rounds, dissecting the golf course, figuring out a, a, a game plan that suits them, and then attacking that game plan. So, yes, I know the golf course really well, and it'll be familiar, but these guys are still good, and, and I'll definitely have to bring my A game to compete. <laughs> That's professional golfer Eric Van Royen, a former Golden Gopher, who will be playing in the upcoming 3M Open in the Twin Cities. The PGA Tour event goes from July 23rd through the 26th. Van Royen played golf with the Golden Gophers from 2009 through 2013, finishing second in the Big Ten in his senior season. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for more Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.